0: Hey, uh, it's good to see you guys. It's such an honor for me to be back with you guys today. If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it. Open to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, so we're looking at Colossians chapter 1. Uh, Lynn is away on vacation. Justin's away on vacation. So we're scraping the bottom of the barrel today. And uh, But it is an honor for me to be with you. Uh, and so you guys started this series last week through the book of Colossians. Uh, it's an incredible book of the Bible that really just talks about the supremacy of Jesus. Like what would it really look like in our lives if Jesus was really before all things. Like if we really believed that Jesus was supreme. And so what would it look like if Jesus was supreme in our marriages? What would it look like if Jesus was supreme in uh, the way we live our days and sort of the way we kind of schedule our time and the way we spend our money, the way we interact with people throughout our day, the way we approach our jobs? What would it look like if Jesus is supreme and Christ is really enough? So that's what the book of Colossians is all about. And so we're calling this series, uh, Colossians, Christ is enough and so today um, we're going to dive in and look at uh, really the sort of the the middle section of Colossians chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 3. Justin finished there last week. We're going to pick it back up today uh, in verse 3 and continue on and so uh, would you read it with me? Here we go starting in verse 3. We always thank God the Father uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven... "...of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, and it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ uh, on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit, and so from the day we heard it, we have not ceased... To pray for you. Okay, so here's context for what we just read. I'm going to explain that, and then we're going to pick up from there and move ahead. All right. So uh, the book of Colossians is really a letter that was written by the apostle Paul to a church in a, a region called Colossae. All right. Now, most of Paul's letters in the New Testament he wrote to churches that he planted on his missionary journeys. Colossae is not one of those. Uh, Paul was preaching in Ephesus, which is about 12 miles from Colossae. Uh, there, a person came to Christ named Epaphras, which he just referenced in what we just read. Epaphras came to Christ, went back to what most Bible scholars believe was his home in Colossae, about 12 miles away, shared the gospel, started this church, and now is pastoring this church. When Paul writes the book of Colossians, or the letter to the church at Colossae, he's actually about 1,200 miles away in prison in Rome. And he's heard about some things that are going on uh, there in the church. What had happened was, uh, a heresy was beginning to creep its way into the church at Colossae, and the heresy was called syncretism. And basically what that means is that they had sort of kind of, kind of uh, viewed Christianity as almost like a salad bar. Like, I'm going to take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And, oh, that looks good. Let's put some of that on here, right? And so they kind of created this weird Frankenstein version of Christianity, and that sort of her- uh, heretical theology was creeping its way into the Colossian church. And so Paul writes this whole letter to say you know what Uh, Jesus is supreme focus on the gospel remember what it really is remember what Jesus has really really done and what a life looks like when he's supreme so Paul writes this back and basically what he's just said is man we've heard what the gospel has done in you it's made its way even to where we are 1200 miles away we're hearing about what God is doing in you we've seen how you've uh how it says in verse um verse six the gospel has quote come to you and then it says uh, later in verse six that you have understood the grace of God in truth I love that phrase. They've understood the grace of God. Some of you know what it's like to really understand the grace of God. The church in Colossae was uh, man. G- Colossae before the gospel went there was a uh, primarily a Gentile area, which means it was primarily pagan. And so, what would happen in areas that were primarily pagan was they would uh, build these temples to false gods. And one of the primary things that they would do there in their worship of false gods is they would actually go and have sexual relations with. What what they called temple prostitutes that were stationed. That was actually like a part of their worship in that day, right? And, and so what Paul's saying is, man, you've understood the grace of God in truth. In other words, you've understood, your, your life used to be like, man, you would leave your family who was longing for you, wanted to spend time with you and your wife and your kids, and you would go almost like you're going to the gym or go to play tennis, just like go do, you know, just going to, just going to do this thing and then come back home. You, you would go and have sex with temple prostitutes and then go back home to your family. And you're just, family flew apart at the seams because of the things that you were doing but that was who you were now you understand the grace of God you felt the weight of the sin that you had that you had committed and the weight of destruction that that caused on your family but now Paul says you understand the grace of God you you used to be someone who would one of the things that was popular in Colossae in that day was the the trade of wool right and so just like in any business corrupt practice can keep can creep in and and so paul would say man uh, you understand what it's like to be corrupt in your business practice in the slave trade and you felt major guilt over um how you've cheated people out of money and you've stolen and you've lied and you felt major guilt over that but now paul says man We're thanking God for his grace because now you've understood the grace of God in truth and how he can forgive you for those things that that you once were, but that's not you anymore. Paul said, man, God has done incredible things in your church, so much so that we're hearing stories even 1,200 miles away about what God is doing in your church. And Paul says, man, I I pray for you. In fact, he says, we don't stop praying for you. We, We haven't ceased to pray for you. He's saying, we've seen God do it, And we believe God wants to continue to do it, but not only continue to do it, we believe God wants to do it more and more in in you and through you. And so we're not ceasing to pray that he would do that. Now, what Paul's about to do is, he's about to give us five things that he prays for the church at Colossae, five things that he wants to see God sort of weave into the fabric of that church. And so as I give you these five things today, we're going to read the rest of this text. And I want to give you those five things. I want to ask you to do two things. Okay. I want to ask you to number one, sort of evaluate your heart, man, are these things woven into the fabric of my heart? That's number one, evaluate your heart. Uh, I'm going to give you the five things in a second. The second thing I want you to do though, is I want you to say, man, not just, I don't just want to evaluate my heart, but also, man, these things can kind of be a model for me, sort of a, sort of a rhythm of my own prayer life. As I pray for my church, I need to pray for these five things that they would be woven into the fabric of my church. Man, the fellowship and and before Two Rivers Baptist Church, over in Two Rivers and now here in Mount Juliet, God has done incredible things. And so, man, we should pray together in for, for this faith family that God would continue and not only continue to do great things, but do even greater things. So let's join Paul together, church, in his prayers for Colossae as we pray for this church, all right? So here we go. Let's read the, the, uh, these things that Paul prays. Verse 9, the second part of verse 9, I want to read this to you. The second part of verse 9, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The first thing Paul is praying for them is that they would intimately know Christ. That they would intimately know Christ. Notice he says, may be filled with the knowledge of his will. The word knowledge in the Greek language, is, right here at least, is the word epignosis. Okay, uh, that's the word in Greek. Epignosis. Now, the word for to, to know something in the original language in Greek is is gnosis. G-n-o-s-i-s. Gnosis. That's the word. But when you add the prefix epi to the beginning of it, it's almost like you're adding 73 exclamation points and a couple of emojis at the end. Like it's like, it gives it emphasis, right? Like, man, not, not just no, but like really no. The Epi like adds intensity, but it also adds um, intimacy. And so Paul is saying here, man, I pray that you would really, really intimately know Christ. What he's saying is, not that we should know a concept, but he's praying that they would know a person. He's not, he's not praying that they would know more God. Like my son, Brady, he's nine. He could probably name every player on every NBA basketball team. And so if we were to say about Brady and his knowledge of basketball, we would say, man, Brady knows his basketball, Right? What Paul is not doing here is saying, I pray that the Colossian church would know their God. He's not praying that they would know God, know more God. He's praying that they would know God more. Do you see the difference? It's not just knowing a concept, it's knowing a person. Here's the best way to to illustrate this. Uh, I had one of the great joys of my life about a year and a half ago. I'm going to show you a picture of it right here. Uh, And Tim Tebow told me this is one of the great joys of his life too. Not not really. Uh, But actually... And that particular, th- this was an event that back when I worked at Lifeway uh, that we did called the main event. And I got, we, we had Tim Tebow come and speak at an event for men and we had Tim Tebow come and speak. And I got to interview him on the stage after that. That's what this is a picture of. And I was telling somebody earlier, this shirt that he was wearing, like uh, when, when he would kind of, you know, just normal people and they talk and kind of do this with their hands and Tim would do that. And that shirt was so tight on his biceps that I could see the vein in his bicep through his shirt. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. So, uh, that has nothing to do with the sermon. I just wanted to tell you that because I think it's awesome. Uh, so I had this, uh, I had this opportunity to sit with him and to, to meet him. And, and really, like, <clears throat> he spoke for about 30 minutes and I spent about 10 minutes with him backstage. And then that was about a 20 minute long interview. And, and that's it. That's all, the only time I've spent with Tim Tebow right? Uh, I've emailed with his uh, publicist and some of his team, but that's the only time I've ever spent with Tim Tebow. My son, though, loves to show that picture to his buddies and tell his friends that their dad is friends with Tim Tebow. That is completely not true, okay? Uh, I'm not friends with Tim Tebow. He is an acquaintance. Like, I... I could tell you when he won the national championship and I could tell you um, when he won the Heisman Trophy and I could tell you the three NFL teams he played for and I could tell you what that vein in his bicep looks like, but I don't know Tim Tebow. Like, I know some Tim Tebow, but I don't know Tim Tebow right you see the difference so paul is not praying that we would just know more about god as a concept he's praying that we would know god more intimately and intensely know god now um what's interesting about this though and like by the way, I know that I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know. Well, Chris, you're saying that, are, do you really think we didn't know that we should know God more? Like, do you really believe that? I, no, I know that you know that. Let me show you what this passage says, and, uh, because, because I want to speak to you pastorally for just a moment about this concept, okay? Notice that it says, asking that you may be filled. Notice that he says that at the end of verse 9, that you may be filled, What he's implying there, he really didn't say, but he's implying in what he said is that currently you are not filled, but he's praying that you may be filled. His implication here is that Christianity is not something you arrive at, but Christianity is sort of a, a trajectory that you set the course of your life on and you keep pursuing with more and more intensity as the days go by, that Christianity is a progressive thing. Um, Charles Spurgeon one of the great preachers of generations past said it this way he said nobody outgrows scripture it only widens and deepens with age Spurgeon's saying it this way he said man once you get to know God at one level of intimacy that it's almost like the parts of a telescope the sections of a telescope that pull out like once you kind of see you get one then another one comes out, another one comes out. And these, there's this progressive, deeper, wider intimacy with God that comes in, a, in, in Christianity that it's progressive over time. And yet, many of us kind of, and if, listen, I, I told somebody the other day, most of the Bible verses that I have memorized. I have memorized from when I was a kid and I memorized them in the King James because that's what the Bible translation that my church uses. And so now sometimes when I quote the Bible just from memory, I'll quote it in King James just because that's kind of when I, when I was a kid, that's when I memorized scripture. But somehow along the way, I stopped with my intensity of memorizing scripture. Right? I read something uh, the other day that the average Christian, Christian sort of stops their great... Tra- if, if they were a Christian from early in life sort of their trajectory of growth um, sort of peaks at somewhere around age 30 and begins to plateau just a little bit. Here's what that implies. That implies that around age 30, somehow we've forgotten what Paul has said here. And he says, Paul says, man, I don't want that for you. I I want you to progressively more and more and more and more be filled not with knowledge of God as a concept, with your intimacy with God, knowing God and the goodness of God more and more and more. You know, I love the the Old Testament. The the Bible says about itself, uh, the, the psalmist says, your word is a lamp unto my feet. And a light in my path. Here's what that means. A lamp, like it doesn't say that it was a, um, you know, like like headlights that shine way out in front, you know. Or a spotlight that shines even further. It says it's a lamp to my feet. What does that mean? That means that a, a lamp would not show you 25 steps down the road. A lamp would show you the one step down the road. Your word is a lamp into my face. It shows me the next step that I should take. So my question to you is, based on what Paul has just told us about how Christianity is a progressive thing where you're growing in your intimacy with Jesus. is My question to you is, very pastorally this morning, what is your next step? What, just simply, what's your next step? Like, what is it that you need to do to be more progressive tomorrow than you are today in your intimacy with Jesus? What is it that you need to do? Is it that you, like me, you need to focus on memorizing Scripture more? I'm just going to be honest with you. Like, that's the one thing that I don't do well in my spiritual disciplines. I don't memorize Scripture well. And I need to do that. Is, is that your next step? Uh, do, do you need to, do you need to, to read, a, to read a, a book, find another book to read? Do you need to set a new Bible reading plan? Do you need to get up five minutes early so you can pray more? Do you need to connect to a life group? Do you, I mean, man, it could be endless. I don't know what your next step is. I know what mine is. And Paul's saying, man, I'm praying that you'll, you'll find more and more intimacy in your progressive relationship with Jesus, but that it starts with just a simple next step. What is the one next step you need to take? And that's my prayer for you, that you would take it. I pray with my kids every night. Here's what I pray for them. And I pray it so they can hear it. I pray this. God, would you give them a hunger and thirst for you that grows deeper as they grow older? God, would you give them a hunger and thirst for you? And listen, I, I believe that's what Paul's praying for the Colossian church here. And so as, so, first, examine your heart. Second, As you pray for your church, would you pray that for them? God, would you give the fellowship at Mount Juliet a hunger and thirst for you that grows deeper as we grow older together? That's what Paul's praying. So first, he prays that they would intimately know Christ. And then second, he prays that they would selflessly, selflessly share Christ. Selflessly share Christ. Look at verse 10. So so the thing about knowing Christ more, right? And then verse 10. So that, so as to walk, so all of, I want you to know Christ first and then, basically is what he's saying right here, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that kind of intimacy with Christ that I just talked about in verse 9, Paul would say doesn't happen in a vacuum but rather it results in a transformed life and the the way we live is is different every day and it results in bearing fruit Jesus would say it this way in John 15 abide in me and in me you'll bear much fruit when you abide in me you'll bear much fruit Um, if you look through this text what you'll see is that Paul first praises them because he's seen that very thing happening The gospel that has come to you and is working in and through you, we've heard about it 1,200 miles away, he says. And so now, he says, "Man, I pray that you would continue to do that as you grow deeper in your faith and your intimacy with Jesus, that it would just... Crack open out of your life and pour out into every domain you find yourself in. It's like this. I'm about to tell you a story that I think I may have told here before, but I asked Daniel M. if I had told this before, and he's like the smartest person I've ever met. And so if he doesn't remember it, I don't think you will either. All right, so here we go. Uh, And he didn't remember it. Um, so, uh, So have I, but let me just ask you just to be sure. Have I told a story here about mango sticky rice? Anybody? Anybody remember it? If you remember that story, raise your hand yes, I have told it here. Okay, well, I'm going to tell it again for the rest of you who didn't remember it. All right. So a few years ago, I went to Thailand. I was serving a church um, that we planted a church in Thailand. And I went to Bangkok to train some of our staff and our pastors that we had sent over there. And uh, they said, man, you've got to try this new thing, this dessert, this Thai dessert called mango sticky rice. Ringing a bell with anybody else now? All right. All right. Yes, it is. All right. So here we go. So you got to try this thing, mango sticky rice. And I said, cool, I, I will. So I, it was, it was incredible. It's like this dessert. It's like buttery, sugary goodness with mango on it. So, oh, it's so good. And so it was amazing. And so literally the next day I went back, got ma- more mango sticky rice at the airport on the way out. I mean, is there mango sticky rice in this airport? And there was. So I bought two of them, <laughs> one to eat then, one to eat on the plane on the way back to the States. I loved it so much, got back home, and the first thing I told my wife was, how was your trip, Chris? It was awesome. Uh, the Lord's doing cool things in our church in Bangkok. Now, mango sticky rice is just m- amazing, right? And I'm telling her all about it. And then we find it at a local restaurant in Smyrna, which is where I was serving at the time. And we, and, and then I tell some of our staff at our church there about this mango sticky rice. And so now they're like, well, let's go have some. So we did. And now Eddie, who was our group's pastor there, every time uh, he has mango sticky rice, he'll text me a picture of the mango sticky rice because it's so impacted his life. Now... <laughs> Remember the story now? Anybody? Alright, so so here, here's the deal. What Paul is saying is that when God impacts your life and you have deep and resonant intimacy with Him, you can't help but it spill out on everybody around you. You can't help it. When something's impacted you, like mango sticky rice impacted me, you wanna, you're a natural evangelist for it. You can't help it, right? That's why when you watch a movie that you think's good or eat somewhere that you think's amazing or you, uh, you go to the beach and you stay in an awesome place and you come back and you're like, man, this place we stayed, wow, it was amazing. Right, you're a natural evangelist for things that have impacted your life, and so Paul says, I, he, "It's no accident that he puts this intimacy with Christ thing first, because what he's saying is when you have that kind of intimacy, it naturally spills over into you selflessly sharing, Christ, being an evangelist with everybody around you about this thing that has deeply impacted you." And so Paul's a man. I'm praying that for you, that you would find that kind of intimacy with me, that it just naturally spills over in you selflessly sharing Christ with everybody around you. Do you see that concept? This is the same thing, really the same idea that Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he's, man, you're not who you used to be. You're a new... 518, remember? The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You're a new creation. Then he would go on later in that that, uh, same chapter and he would say, you're an ambassador for Christ, God making his appeal through you. It's the same same idea. Man, God has made you new and you're not who you used to be. And you feel the weight of it so much that you naturally live as an ambassador wherever you go for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul prays for the Colossian church that they would be that. Our prayer for you is, and man, I would ask you that, that your prayer for each other is That wherever you go, the goodness of Jesus and the gospel that we know is true spills out around us. So that what happens is, you kind of become this um, um, sort of undercover, maybe not even undercover, but sort of this undercover person who's stealthily infiltrating the domains that you find yourself in every day with the gospel of Jesus. Because that's the way God's designed this whole thing to work. See, there are currently about seven and a half billion people, seven billion-ish people in the world, Uh, about four and a half billion of those people don't know Jesus. And God has wired this whole thing that his glory would be multiplied and the gospel would be spread through people who have deep and resonating, growing, uh, um, progressive intimacy with Jesus in a way that spills out of you in the way you talk and the way you act to those people who have not yet heard of the goodness of Jesus. So God has placed you exactly where you are uh, in your school, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, uh, on your, um, you know, your your kids sports teams or in the HOA that you're in or in this, you know, the the, the week that you're on vacation this summer, specifically at that place at that time. So that. This would happen through you, so that you would selflessly share the goodness of Jesus because of the way the goodness of Jesus has impacted you. It would just spill over naturally. So Paul says, "Man, I'm praying that for you. It's already been happening. I'm praying that it'll happen more and more and more." And sometimes we think, "Man, I, I'm just I, I'm too I'm too young for that, or I'm too old for that." I want to tell you one story. Um, there's this guy that actually was at the church that I used to serve, and his name's, his name's Benny. And Benny was 70 years old. He had retired. And he said, man, uh, his exact phrase was, I want to die with my boots on. That's what he said. I want to die with my boots. on. what he meant is I don't want to go somewhere and just live in a retirement community and play golf every day. I want to, I want to live up until my very last breath, giving my life for the sake of the goodness of Jesus, because he so impacted me. And so Benny sold most of what he had and moved to India so he could be a chaplain in a hospital in India. So he could take, infiltrate India and that hospital specifically with the goodness of Jesus that had so impacted him. See, you're, and what we have a tendency to do with this whole idea right here is say, yeah, but, right? And then we put in a thing like, I'm too old or I'm too young or I don't know enough or I haven't been a Christian long or I'm just an introvert, I'm not an extrovert or whatever, right? We fill in the blank with something. See, Benny could have done all that stuff. Man, I've put in my time. Man, I'm 70 years old. It's hot in India. It's, it's not, I'm not in great health. I mean, he could have filled in the blank with a lot of things, right? But he didn't. He gave his life for it because the gospel had so impacted him. And so Paul says, man, don't fill in the blank with an excuse. Fill in the blank with the goodness of Jesus. Which, by the way, really leads us to the next thing. The third thing I want you to see that Paul's praying is that they would be strengthened by unstoppable power of Christ. The unstoppable power of Christ. Look at verse 11. He actually uses that phrase, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. So, have you ever felt like, man, I just, I just can't, and what, and whatever the thing is, right? Parenting, husbanding—is that a word? I don't know. Uh, wifing, um, being an employee, uh, whatever the thing is that you do. I mean, I just, I just can't. I, I just can't keep going. I don't ha- I just don't have what it takes. I can't do it. Have you ever felt that way? If you have, Paul's speaking directly to you, okay? And if you have ever felt that way, listen, you're in really good company because we all have at some point and so has every person that the Bible tells the story of. In fact, let me give you a few of those. i, I put some in my notes. If you've ever felt that way, you're in good company because, because here, Abraham lied Sarah laughed at God's promises, didn't believe what God said. Moses was a stutterer. David was too young. He was also too small. Timothy had ulcers. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. Abraham was too old. John was self-righteous. Lazarus was dead. Uh, Paul was a murderer. So was Moses. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. Elijah was burned out. John was self-righteous. Like, right, we, I mean, we could keep going with these, right? The Bible tells the story not of superheroes like strong people, or the gospel's not for strong people. The gospel is for weak people who say, man, God can be glorified in my weakness. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to boast about my weakness because that's when God gets the most glory, right? That's what Paul's point is. He said, man, uh, he, notice he, he doesn't say that, um, Well, he says that God would strengthen them with all power according to his glorious might, right? He doesn't just tell you to suck it up and pull, them, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, by your glorious might. He says, no, I pray that you'd, you'd be strengthened by my, by, by God's glorious might, by God's glorious might. Um, the word here that he uses for power, is in the word for power in the New Testament is the word dynamis in Greek. That's where we get the word uh, dynamite from, right? This explosive power. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive dynamis, power, explosive power to be uh, with the Holy Spirit's power, what you could never be by yourself. You can never, ever do it by yourself. Um, And Jesus said, or Paul said in Romans 8, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead (laughs) lives in you, right? And so when we are weak, we boast because he is strong. And Paul's saying to them, and I'm praying that in those moments when you feel weak, that you'd be reminded you are. And that's why you need the gospel. And to just rest in the presence of God, and the overwhelming um, sort of uh, feeling of knowing that you can be strengthened by God and his dynamis, his explosive power in you, this, which really leads us to the next thing. The fourth thing that Paul prays for them is that they would find unwavering joy in Christ, unwavering joy in Christ, verse eleven being strengthened with all power the end i 'm going to read the end of it again with all power, according to his glorious might for. All endurance and patience with joy. Uh, in America, we, we we often live for and kind of pursue life, liber, liberty, in the pursuit of happiness. Right? Yeah, life, liberty, in the pursuit of happiness. We kind of chase after the American dream, which equals happiness. Right? We we run after happiness. But notice here that Paul doesn't say um, I pray for all endurance and patience with happiness that would be a different word in the original language Paul doesn't use that word Paul uses the word joy not happiness and that's intentional because happiness is related to happenings joy is related to Jesus Okay? Happiness comes and goes based on the circumstances that you find yourself in. Joy doesn't. It comes from being able to rest in the goodness of Jesus. And if anybody understood this... Paul did. In fact, several times he wrote about this very idea. He, he uh, in um, First Corinthians chapter eleven he talked about how he'd been beaten with rods, he'd been shipwrecked, he uh, didn't have food, he'd been chased by, um, you know, kind of on the run from people that were trying to rob him. Uh, and he says, "Fine, you, you want to do all those things to me? Great, because you know what they do? They stir up my dependence in Jesus." You want to you talk about what it's like to, to have, be hungry and not have much? Cool. It deepens my dependence on Jesus. Uh, he would say, man, all those things happen to me? That's cool because all things work together for good for those who love Jesus, love God, and are called according to his purpose. Hey, Paul would say things like in other places, man, you want to put me in jail? Cool. I'll just share the gospel there, right? Uh, oh, you, you, wanna, you want me to stop sharing the gospel? You want to kill me? Cool. To die is gain. No, oh, instead, oh, you want, me to, you want me to, you're not gonna kill me? You want me to live? Okay, to live as Christ, right? You could never, you know, kind of corner Paul because any situation you'd put him in, he'd just go, cool, Jesus, Jesus is enough. And it's from that sort of perspective and mindset that Paul writes this and he said, man, that same kind of thing, that, and by the way, remember, he's writing them from prison about this. And most Bible scholars believe not just prison, but like the darkest, lowest, deepest part of prison, the, the, the bottom of the prison, which is where all the sewage would run, and it was just the worst part that you could possibly imagine. It's not just behind bars, right? And you get three meals a day, and you got an air conditioning in there. Like It was the, the absolute worst part of the prison that he was in. And it's from that perspective that he writes this to them, saying, I'm praying that you would find patience with, with joy, by the way, the, patience is really just the emotional state of someone who really gets this concept of joy. And so if you're someone who would go, man, I'm just an impatient person. There's something about joy that you don't yet understand. Because you, to say, I, I'm, just, I'm just impatient, implies that, man, I recognize that my current circumstances are not ideal. And so I'm impatient waiting on them to be ideal. Paul says, no, that's the opposite perspective. Paul says, I'm praying that you would have patience with joy. Meaning, you know what? No matter what happens, good or bad, uh, out in the sun on the beach or in the bottom of the worst part of the Roman prison sitting in a foot deep of sewage, no matter what, I'm okay. I have patience with joy, knowing that God is sovereign and God has it under control and that God, Christ, is enough. So he says... I'm praying that you'd have unwavering joy in Christ. And then finally, we'll wrap it up here. Um, He prays that they'd have continual thankfulness for Christ. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who qualified you. If you write in your Bible or underline things, man, underline the Father who qualified you or circle it or highlight it or something because that's important. Giving thanks to the Father who qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, what he does is he prays that they would have all these things, and then he prays that they would be reminded of the foundation for all these things. Notice that he doesn't say that, uh, he doesn't say that, uh, I'm giving thanks to you. Because you have qualified yourself to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. No, no, no. He doesn't say that. Notice that he says, I give thanks to God, the Father, who has qualified you. Paul's saying, listen, remember, remember the brokenness of you. And remember what God has saved you from. Remember that it, like Isaiah would say in Isaiah 64, even, and, and then Paul actually would say it again in Romans chapter three, that even your righteousness is like filthy rags. Even the, the part of you that you think, man, I'm doing awesome in this compared to God is like filthy rags. Even your righteousness is like filthy rags. In fact, Paul would say it this way in Romans chapter 14, verse 23. He'd say, listen, you can do all the, I mean, start naming stuff, all the good stuff that you could do with your life, right? But Romans 14, 23, Paul says, all those good things that you're talking about, if they don't proceed, proceed from the perspective of your faith in Christ and Him doing it through you, that even those things are sin. Even the good things that you do are sin if they don't come from the perspective of Jesus. So what he's saying is, even in your most awesomeness, you're still broken and sinful, his point is, and, and all of that is, that man, you don't have in you what it takes uh, to be right with God. In fact, one theologian said, the only thing you have to bring to your salvation is the sin which made it necessary. Um, and man, so, the, the, and the opposite of sort of that perspective, it, he, basically he's pointing them away from trying to manage their own sin. We often do that. We try to manage our sin. And one of my favorite preachers sort of talks about this idea of sin management this way. He said it's kind of like a beach ball that if you're at the beach and you're all, you know, gelled up with sunscreen and you've got this beach ball, it's like this size and you're trying to hold it under the water. If you've ever tried to do that before, you're all gelled up and so you're slippery anyway, which makes the beach ball slippery, and you try to hold it down and you can hold it for a little while, right? You count to 5 or whatever and if you make it to 5 you're awesome, but you won't probably because it's so slippery and that ball just it pops right back up out of the water. You've all done that before or seen somebody do it or can picture it right now, right? And so uh, the preacher I'm talking about describes sin management that way. He says, man, you can do it for a little while, but you don't have in you what it takes to do that long term. Your righteousness is like filthy rags. You can't continue to do it. You just can't do it. And if you've ever been to youth camp when you were in high school, and taking some CDs and broken them and throw them in the fire or nailed some stuff to the cross that you wanted to stop doing or whatever it is you know that this concept's true because what you know is after you did that and broke those CDs you came right back home and went and bought them again in 4 weeks right or whatever right i mean that, that's what we all that's what we did we we tried to manage our sin and we can't we can't do that we can't we don't have in us what it takes and paul says be reminded be reminded that it is god who qualified you it's God who did his work. In fact, if you look all throughout this section of scripture that we've read today, you see that Paul is continually giving thanks to God for his work in them. He, and, and in doing that, what he's doing is sort of subtly reminding them of the need for and the reality of the gospel. You're not good enough. That's, and neither am I. And that's why Jesus had to die. If you were good enough or could be, Jesus would not have had to die. And so Paul says, man, I'm praying for you that you'll have continual thankfulness for Christ and what he's done in you because you couldn't do it for yourself. So he gives us these five things and he says, man, I'm praying these things for you. Now, I'm going to wrap this up with this story today that really based on the last thing that I just said, and I feel like I've told this one here before. And so if I have, that's, that's cool uh, because it's worth telling again, it's a really good one. Um, there's this guy named John Newton. John Newton wrote the song "Amazing Grace," and John Newton, before he became a follower of Jesus, uh, he was a wretched person. I mean, just—I mean, just a bad dude. Uh, he, when he was 11 years old, got thrown into the slave trade, not as a slave, but like as someone who was, you know. Uh, pursuing that as a, as as like a business, right? And so he became kind of an understudy to people who were slave owners and on a slave ship. And he, the the things that he kind of uh, accounts that he did to people who bear the image of God and have intrinsic dignity because of that, the things that he did are, are just, just deplorable. And so John Newton tells this whole story of how he was so broken and even his mom said, "Man, his mom was a Christian and his mom would pray for his salvation and pray that God would transform him and and she would even say, I just I just can't believe that it's ever going to happen. He's so he's so wretched. Can't believe it's ever going to happen." Well, <clears throat> he continued on in the slave trade industry, continued to progress, eventually became captain of some slave trading ships, quit that career for a little while, went to the military, but sort of still that same attitude of just just treating people like trash, he continued until he finally hit rock bottom. And when he just hit rock bottom and lost everything, you know, some of you know, when you hit rock bottom and you don't have anything left and you're laid on your back, all you can do is look up, right? And that's what John Newton did. And he saw the goodness of God and he saw that his right, even his attempts to be good, his righteousness were like filthy rags. And he didn't have in him what it took to to be good or to to be right with God or any of those things. And so he came to faith in Christ. He actually became a pastor uh, and gave the rest of his life to ministry and to helping people that were caught in the junk that he had once found himself in. And so it's sort of from that perspective that he wrote the amazing song that we know, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. That's powerful, isn't it? it? Makes you change the way you sing that song and think about the lyrics of that song. The end of his life, his family was gathered around and he had lost most of his memory. His family gathered around only a few days before he died. Um, he kind of became lucid again. And uh, he, he said this, he said, my memory is fading. I don't remember many things, but two things I remember. I am a great sinner, but God is a great savior. See, that's what Paul's saying that they would remember. Remember that God, they are a great sinner, but God is a great Savior. And so today with those five things that we prayed, especially that last one, kind of from that perspective, I want us to sing and respond, recognizing that God is a great Savior. That should stir up worship and delight in Jesus in you if you can resonate with the fact that you too are a great sinner, but God is a great Savior. So that's my prayer for us. I'm going to pray to that end. We're going to stand and we're going to sing and worship together. All right, let's do that. God, would you you burn into our souls these five things? And would would you weave into our faith family these five things in a deep and resounding way? God, we know that when, when we uh, remind ourselves of these things and when you begin to do these in us, that we then become the church that Jesus, you said the gates of hell would not be able to stand against. So God, make us an unstoppable force for you, not because we manufacture it, but because you do these five things in us. So today I join with Paul in praying for the fellowship at Mount Juliet, that you would not just do those in Colossae, but you would do those here in us today. In Jesus' name.